Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Just want to zoom in on the FX market first of all and bring in Hans Redeker, Morgan Stanley Investment Management Global Head of FX Strategy. And he joins us from London. Hans, let's begin with Turkey. What constitutes a currency crisis and how close are we to one in Turkey? So obviously the uh, recent uh, uh, movements in the currency had been uh, quite dramatic and you have to put that in the context of uh, real interest rates. So in analyzing a foreign exchange, we have always to think about what type of real rate level do you require uh, to cover up uh, for internal and external imbalances. And uh, the uh, uh, Turkish uh, real rate environment is obviously too low uh, for the taste of investors and that is uh, why the exchange rate is currently selling off. Now when you look into what is uh, priced in on uh, rate hikes uh, in Turkey is about 200 basis points. So in order to stabilize the exchange rate, uh, you would have uh, to see uh, rate hikes uh, going beyond uh, what is currently priced in in the in the front end of the curve. So, now, that obviously does require a, a decision by the central bank to do so. Well, and it's amazing to me that the central bank hasn't moved yet. And it's not just me. A lot of traders are saying, what is the uh, what are they waiting for? What do they need uh, to, to raise rates? If they don't raise rates, how far can this go? Well, that is obviously the ultimate question, but you have as well to put that in the context of uh, of uh, other circumstances. So that is actually the uh, vulnerability which is currently exposed there in Turkey is as well a result of uh, U.S. dollar strengths, which we are now experiencing since uh, Well, Paris. hold on a second. So if, if, it's hard to call this that. I mean, the lira has fallen 21% so far this year. Uh, Japanese investors who had previously been bullish are now pulling back, cutting their losses, getting out of there. Uh, this is isn't just a dollar strength story. <laughs> No, 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 no. You have actually to think about uh, uh, under which circumstances uh, can you fund uh, a foreign uh, imbalance of funding needs uh, in capital imports, and under which circumstances it's becoming more difficult. And uh, the situation was obviously in the past few years that there were situations where uh, capital imports uh, into higher yielding environments uh, were less difficult uh, than they emerged uh, from uh, February onwards. And of course, there were then uh, other factors uh, which are much more specific uh, to Turkey kicking in. But uh, my point here is that uh, uh, it would uh, be easier for for authorities to stabilize the exchange rate within an environment of uh, U.S. dollar weakness. When you have dollar strength generally true, uh, um, ha- uh, happening out or happening, then uh, that effort is becoming uh, much more difficult. That is the point I wanted to make. It's a good point, Hans. And when you overload the, uh, the credibility issue here as well, you've got investors wondering whether the central bank could indeed um, deliver a rate cut, never mind a rate hike. After the election in Turkey, a real credibility issue there too, Hans. What's the contagion risk here, if there is any at all, Hans? So what you have seen in the merchant market so far is that um, uh, bonds, uh, equity and credit had been uh, mildly selling off, but uh, it had been not uh, uh, as dramatic as you would uh, assume if you look at the exchange rate. So what happened here is that uh, the value at risk uh, in emerging market portfolios uh, got reduced uh, by uh, people uh, uh, hedging the currency risk. Now, you know that uh, hedging in the uh, fixed uh, uh, emerging market environment is expensive, so that actually means we have currently unsustainable uh, portfolio structures. 
So it actually means uh, that uh, either at one point you have to lift the, he- the hatch or alternatively you need to reduce your holdings in equities, bonds uh, and credit. And uh, that decision is going to come up in the next uh, few days. And a lot, again, is going to depend uh, how the general perception of the US dollar is, what you think about uh, global risk appetite, are we in an environment where people put money at work or not? And um, we have as well then to think about uh, the uh, complicating issue of uh, the euro. What is currently happening in uh, in uh, Italy does not help the issue. Yeah. Hans, you know, you make a really important point about how any moves uh, to stabilize or even sort of edify uh, developing economies really hinges on the dollar and uh, the euro. And right now I'm looking at a story that Bloomberg News put out showing that emerging market companies and governments have borrowed a record amount of hard currency debt in the past decade. What is your view for the dollar in the next six months, and uh, how concerning yeah. is this for EM? No, the, the thing is that there's not, nothing new that, uh, that uh, there had been a uh, hard currency inflow into a emerging market. You have as well to think about uh, that uh, in the context of uh, capital uh, or capex expansion in emerging markets. When the global economy is synchronized and strong, you eat into global capacity reserves. You wanted to increase your capacity. You use U.S. dollar for funding purposes, and therefore you raise dollar debt and uh, uh, take it uh, for your domestic uh, investment uh, purposes. So that is not news is usual. Now, um, what is, uh, however, uh, um, a new theme here is where do we stand uh, in respect of uh, global economic growth? This is still as strong as it's synchronized as it seemed to look uh, in January. And we have seen all the weak data, uh, especially in February, coming in in Europe and then later on as well in Japan, which are raising doubts on that. And uh, you need to analyze the market from that point. We have uh, released a scoreboard here at Morgan Stanley in respect of the U.S. dollar, which gives us quite precise information about the outlook of the U.S. dollar. And that warned us uh, in February, March uh, to get long dollars. And what it does tell me now is that uh, it is uh, now time uh, to uh, see only very limited upside potential in the U.S. dollar. What I wanted to say here is that this dollar rally is going to run out of steam within the next uh, few weeks. Hans Redeker, it's always great to catch up with you, Hans, joining us from the capital of global foreign exchange out of London, Morgan Stanley's Investment Management Global Head of FX Strategy. We did get some news overnight. The United States House approving a sweeping overhaul of bank regulation, now sending it to the President of the United States, Donald Trump, a bill that would give him a chance to make good on his vow to do a big number on the Dodd-Frank Act. So to what extent is this a big number on the Dodd-Frank Act? Let's bring in Isaac Boltanski, shall we? Compass Point Research, Policy Research, Managing Director. Um, Isaac, your thoughts on whether this is a big number on the regulation or not, and what's in the bill? It's a number, but I don't think it's a big number by any means. This is a modest, narrowly tailored bill that isn't as good as its proponents argue or as bad as its detractors suggest. At its core, there are really three elements. The bill significantly lessens the regulatory burden for community banks. And here I mean banks under $10 billion in assets. It modestly reduced compliance costs for regional banks. 
Uh, and uh, the mechanism that it does there is raising the $50 billion threshold uh, for enhanced stand- prudential standards from the Fed all the way up to $250 billion over time. And I think it's going to bolster ta- M&A tailwinds in the banking sector as yeah. a result. Well, and, and that's where I was going to go with this. I, I think uh, after reading a number of analyses last night uh, after this bill uh, was passed, it seemed like there is going to be a pretty significant wave of mergers and acquisitions among smaller community banks. And that may be the biggest takeaway uh, from this number, uh, to use the language du jour. I'm just wondering, I, I mean, do you think that this is going to benefit that industry? Or do you think, I mean, what's what's the outcome, the ultimate outcome of that? The ultimate outcome, I think, is that we will have a a modest consolidation of the banking sector. I think that uh, regional banks and super regional banks will become acquirers. I think that they will um, uh, start looking around the landscape more aggressively. Uh, A good example is New York Community Bank, who sits at $49.7 billion in assets and has done everything it could to stay under that $50 billion threshold. Now they have the capacity to look across the landscape and see where they want to increase their footprint. And so I think that's a perfect example of someone who wasn't a buyer is going to become a buyer after the president sells this, sells the, excuse me, signs this bill on Thursday. Isaac, um, to what extent is there any evidence that banks have struggled to lend because of these regulations? It's a, it's a tough argument to prove, and, and I think of the mortgage market as a good example. Um, is there uh, are mortgage credit standards too tight, or is it an issue of household formation and uh, supply availability yeah. uh, and inventory in certain markets? So I think we hear a lot of hyperbolic arguments, especially about this bill. But as you know, the truth is always more nuanced when it comes to financial services policy in particular. So I think that on the margin, we are going to see a slight increase in lending in certain products because of this bill. I think community banks are going to become uh, more willing to lend, particularly in mortgage products. But it's not going to be the the panacea for uh, lending activity that some have described it as. Isaac, do you think that big Wall Street banks are going to take more risk, substantially more risk, under uh, the sort of rolled back Dodd-Frank? So from this bill, no. There's very little in this bill that impacts the biggest uh, Wall Street banks. It's a supplementary leverage ratio change and a municipal bond uh, capital change. Um, But if we look more holistically and we start to think about other forthcoming issues, in particular the Volcker rule change that's going to be ongoing throughout the year from the five regulators, as well as uh, some of the other capital and liquidity rule changes ahead, I do think that it's clear directionally the regulatory burden is lessening for those bigger banks. Isaac, it's always great to get your insight on what's happening in Washington, D.C. and ultimately what it means for some of the themes and stories happening here. On Wall Street, Isa Boltanski, Compass Point Research Policy, a research managing director. We've been talking a lot about developing markets this morning as the Turkish lira falls in a precipitous decline that seems to have no end. Still with us, pleased to say, Don Gimbel, Senior Vice President of CIBC Atlanta Trust Wealth Management, overseeing 
$48 billion. Uh, he has decades of experience in the market, and we are pleased to say he joins us here. Don, um, I want to just get your view on uh, developing markets. You said that about half your fund is currently in the U.S., quarter in Asia, and a quarter in Europe, correct? Correct. So right now, at a time uh, when particularly China has built up its external debt to such a degree and has over-leveraged its economy to the point where they're actually taking action, are you getting more concerned now? Uh, interesting. We've been talking about the excess of U.S. Treasury debt for how many decades? And now we're talking about China. And uh, I remember a few years ago uh, talking about uh, uh, was there a banking crisis in China? And I had several clients say, oh, my God, we've got to get out of China because of the banking situation. And I said, the banks are owned by the government. They're not going to default. And um, I, I look at China today. Now, the, the, in my opinion, the, uh, the miracle of, of the People's Republic of China over the last 20 years has been the financing by the United States of the growth in China. There's been a huge transfer of money into, uh, into China over the last 20 years, and <clears throat> that has produced what we've seen. And uh, is, is it coming to an end now? Well, I think the, the question, you got to ask the right question. You know, if you ask the Please wrong question. Please help me out. Is there a okay. question that I the, should the be right, asking you? The right question is, in China, we've seen a consolidation uh, of power from a standing committee into the hands of the leader. Uh, now, in, in, when Singapore was started 50-odd years ago, Lee Kuan Yew, an enlightened man of incredible strength, formed a country and ran a country and has run a country for, well, he passed away last year, as you know, but uh, uh, for 50 years, and he did wonderful things, made, made uh, Singapore into the, the jewel in the crown of Asia. Uh, in China, we have a consolidation, and the question is, is this an enlightened man who is opening his arms to, uh, to foreigners and is continuing to raise the standard of living in the, in the People's Republic? Uh, so far, the answer is yes, but uh, uh, the, the extent of, of lending in China, I think, really is not that relevant to the future of the PRC at this point. Now, could it get worse? Of yeah. course. So, you know, you were talking about how uh, you decide when to change your investments uh, if the fundamentals change. Right. And a lot of people are saying the fundamentals are shifting, that we're not seeing the sort of synchronized global growth that we once did. Uh, you're rolling your eyes. Um, <laughs> that, 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 you know, you're seeing weakness, you're seeing defaults tick up in China, you're seeing the situation in Argentina and Turkey right. deteriorate. Is that not a fundamental change to you? Uh, it's an evolution. Uh, I, as somebody said a couple of days ago on Bloomberg, uh, we're not in the early stages of this economic cycle globally. Uh, the question is, are we at, uh, in the, the fourth inning, the sixth inning or the eighth inning? Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's a really good question. My guess is we're halfway through the game. Um, and there's, there's at least a couple of years left. Um, in much of the world. Now, what's happening in Turkey is government-driven, and when a government uh, drives off a cliff, as in my opinion, as it has in Turkey and as, as the, de the deterioration in both Argentina and to a lesser degree in Brazil um, are, are red flags, there's no doubt, 
Uh, but that isn't that isn't necessarily the whole picture of the emerging markets. Emerging markets are a vast number of very individual countries whose economic growth is well behind uh, their development is well behind ours. Therefore, we call them developing countries. We, we you know we used to call them third world, but can't do that anymore, right? So it's. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I look at problems around the world, and I, this wall that we were talking about before, The John, wall of it, worry. The wa wall of worry. We, we have it in, in the U.K. with Brexit. Yeah. Um, we have it with a new young man in France. So uh, we have struggling in Spain. I mean, they're it, all over the world. Look at, look at what's happening in Australia. Yeah. So we could talk for hours on We this. could. But time's run out. Um, yep. Don, can I just say thank you? Thank you for coming in this morning. We really appreciate your balanced approach to, to global markets, a reasoned approach at a time when there's a lot of scary news out there in some places, including Turkey. Don Gimbel, Senior Vice President of CIBC Atlantic Trust Wealth Management. A lot of news this morning, and among the headlines, Comcast decided to up the ante uh, for the Fox assets and is going to offer a cash bid uh, that will likely exceed the one of Walt Disney & Co. Walt Disney shares down uh, nearly uh, nine-tenths of one percent, so definitely a strong reaction. I want to bring in Abila Ahmed, who's been covering the twists and turns in the saga, and I'm sure that there will be more of them as it continues uh, for Bloomberg News. She covers all things deals and Disney and everything else. Uh, so what do we make of this, right? I mean, this seems like uh, Fox, the Fox assets at hand here. We're talking about the movies. We're talking about the TV shows. We're talking yeah. about content. Why does Comcast want that more than Disney? Comcast needs it more than Disney. Some people will say Disney obviously has its own TV uh, film studio. Comcast doesn't. Comcast product, especially overseas, when you look at it, is significantly weaker than Disney. So Comcast is pretty desperate. You know, I think everybody's woken up to the fact that this is the last big asset of scale to go in the media industry and everyone's just falling over themselves to secure it. Where are they going to get the money to make this deal happen? The debt markets. <laughs> they already have, what, $65, $66 billion of debt. This is going to make them one of the most indebted uh, American companies. And, you know, there are debt investors who have already indicated they're happy to lend to this company. You know, m most of the debt issuance in the market has been to do with M&A, and this is just another deal, and, uh, you know, people are happy to support it. Well, uh, some people who are a little bit less than happy are the Comcast shareholders shares down now uh, in futures trading uh, down more than 2% in response. Is this and, just and just to tell you, down more than 25% since the 24th of January. Yeah, minor detail. I mean, it seems like people are not that enthused about this bidding war. Is it just the price or is it that people think that there just isn't necessarily a better strategy here other than entering into this kind of... A bit of both. And yeah. I think Comcast shareholders think that this is a vote against what Comcast is currently doing, which is cable. And that makes up 80% of their business currently. So people are saying, hey, if you think... It's like we should be just betting the house on going for these assets. What does it say about what we actually currently do? Well, you know, just to go back to Lisa's point about how shareholders are, seem to be so thrilled about this. Um, if you were going to offer a combination stock cash deal, that seems to have been taken away, not necessarily by your own internal strategy, but by the marketplace. Because if you're going to be offering anything that involves Comcast stock, you could bet that 
that would be a much less valuable deal. Yeah, and listen, Fox has already said that they are not interested in that, right? Remember, Comcast actually made a bid for these assets late last year, and Fox chose Disney over Comcast at that time. Right. So what does, I mean, how much more would they have to offer? Well, at that time, they had offered 16% more than what Fox has agreed to sell these assets to Disney for. So that would put it at about $60 billion. Talking to my sources today, they are saying that they do realize that it's going to have to be higher than that to beat out Disney. All right. So here's the thing. From Fox's perspective, does it matter? Are they just interested in a price tag or is there something more here that they're looking for in a suitor? If is you're something Rupert beyond Murdoch? their just their pocketbook, <laughs> are they looking beyond the, the, the wallet and just looking at the personality? Sure. <laughs> Listen, initially, Rupert Murdoch was not just about the wallet, but what he wanted, he's going to have a 5% share in the new Disney with the Fox assets combined. And that would have mitigated a lot of tax issues for him. So an all cash bid for him makes less sense because because of because of the tax and the tax burden that the family will have to bear. So Comcast has to keep that in mind when it's coming back with its second firm offer. But this is really interesting. In other words, even if Comcast gives a higher offer than Disney, it might be less attractive to the Murdochs as a result of the tax treatment. Yeah, absolutely. And that was one of the reasons why they said they didn't go for Comcast's offer late last year, even though at that time it was already higher. And um, they were also worried about regulatory, the regulatory issues. As you know, regulators have been very strongly looking at all of these sorts of mergers and, and you know, Fox decided that they thought that the Disney bid had a better chance of getting through. Well, the uh, regulators in the UK, I believe uh, they were very concerned about (laughs) what would happen to Sky News. Yeah, and look, and and that's another, there's already a bidding war there for Sky as well. You know, as you know, Fox has been trying to buy that business for a while. Um, The 61% of it, it doesn't already own. And Comcast has come in and made a bid for that too. All right. Well, the saga continues and we will keep following it. And so will you. And you'll be joining us, I'm sure, again in the near future. Nabila Ahmed, uh, a Bloomberg Deals reporter and uh, the expert when it comes to Comcast and Fox and Disney. And Maybe the they'll make it into a, a, into a, into a, you know, a Netflix series that could run simultaneously ah. with a series about uh, CBS and uh, Indeed, Viacom. indeed. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.